0: Hello and welcome to Ditching Hourly. I'm Jonathan Stark. Today I've got a very special episode of Ditching Hourly for you. I'm joined by value pricing pioneer Ron Baker to discuss the ethical challenges of hourly billing. Ron is a recovering CPA who began value pricing in 1989. He's the author of seven best selling books, including Pricing on Purpose, Measure What Matters to Customers, and Implementing Value Pricing. He's the founder of Pricing Think Tank, Verisage Institute, and a radio talk show host on the VoiceAmerica.com show, The Soul of Enterprise. Without further ado, here's my interview with Ron Baker. Ron, welcome back to the
1: show. Thanks, Jonathan. Thrilled to be here. For folks who haven't uh, heard the previous episode that you were on, could you tell just a little bit about yourself? I'm the founder of Verisage Institute, and our mission in life is to bury the billable hour and the timesheet across all professional firms, including IT consultants and uh, CPA firms, law firms, advertising agencies, anybody who bills by the hour. And uh, I actually did that in my own firm back in 1989 when I practiced as a CPA. And I've been writing and talking about it since 1994 in public, and I've written seven books on it. So that's kind of what i do excellent
0: yes amazing books too by the way i believe that's that might be how it came across you in the first place in fact pricing on uh yeah pricing on purpose right pricing yeah mm-hmm. yeah excellent well what we wanted to talk about today came out of a conversation that we had uh sort of on twitter i think about the ethics of hourly billing or the lack thereof not to uh lead the witness too much here but um, A lot of times when I explain value based fees to someone who's used to billing by the hour, they have this really knee jerk reaction like that it's gouging or uh, something bad or unethical. And it's 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 almost a violent reaction. Have you experienced that?
1: Absolutely. In fact, I was just in Denver talking to lawyers and uh, I did a value pricing session and two people came up to me and asked me that very question. Mm -hmm. And uh, another variant of that question that we get is how can you possibly charge different prices to do different customers for the exact same work? Mm, I love that one. Yeah. So the whole price discrimination thing, but but the gouging thing is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And part of it, I think, is just that it, you know these these prof- professionals for the most part who bill hourly are not used to having the pricing discussion up front, and if you present a price up front, how can you gouge the customer? Because they can say no if they think it's too high. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> I mean it's as simple as that. But with hourly billing, once you kind of start the project, that's where I think the temptation—not well, not the temptation, but the uh, the proclivity to uh, for gouging. Can can rear its ugly head because you just get into something and you m- might have misscoped it or whatever, and I, I think gouging is far more prevalent with hourly billing. Which and and I can prove this empirically. We write down and write off more than we write up. Write up. I've never even heard someone say that. Exactly, and 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 we do that because the customer finds out after the fact that they don't like the price. Isn't that the definition of gouging?
0: Right. And it's and the thing with project work is it's, it's you can't return it. It's not like a lamp you can take back to Target. <laughs> exactly. So it, in the most brutal scenario that I've come across, and this is one of the things that really pushed me hard into value pricing, was repeatedly, not just once, not just twice, but a number of times when I worked at a small firm, having a, a painful phone call with a client who says, basically... We spent all this money with you, $60,000, $100,000 with you, and, we're, and we've got nothing to show for it And, <clears throat> and because we're, we're in a project that's been ongoing, billing by the hour, and it, we're over the estimate, and clearly we're nowhere near done, and they have this situation now where they need to decide to either kill the project and lose all that money and maybe come after us or continue and hope that we're closer to the finish line than anybody actually thinks and the, the the I guess the irony about it is it never occurred to me back then it never occurred to me really in, until after i had been doing value pricing for a while that I had never given anyone a price like it feels when you give an estimate to someone that you're giving them a price for the work and they treat it like that they they Hear the estimate seventy thousand dollars, and they're like, "All right, that's that's worth it to me." One hundred and forty is not worth it to them, mm-hmm. and by the time they hit seventy, eighty, ninety, and the meter's still running, that's when you know there's a sort of clients from hell term. There's a website called Clients from Hell where freelancers kind of complain about you know clients turning into monsters and micromanaging them, and I'm like, you know, you might want to look at the way that you're working and it, it might not be the clients it might be that you are you know they feel like you're just a cab driver
1: taking them on the scenic route you know <laughs> exactly you know when I started um, my own practice I build by the hour because that's what I did when I left a big eight accounting firm it's all I knew and I learned very fast that it was a lousy customer experience For precisely those reasons that you just mentioned, the client would come in after getting the bill in the mail and and they'd say, well, why didn't you tell me it was going to cost this much? And my only answer was I spent the time. Well, I don't care about the time at that point. That's my problem, not theirs. Mm -hmm. They're not happy about the price. They're shocked. And. That's why we started to move to upfront pricing. It had nothing to do with marketing or economics or even human behavior. It was just, I thought it was a better customer experience to give them certainty in price because it's how we buy everything else. And I would also say a strategy that people who feel that or are, are are fearful that they could be gouging a customer. Remember, you're presenting the price upfront, hopefully with options.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, so you're presenting three options upfront. And, and by definition, the client accept one, accepts one, it must be perceived as a fair price. But then also, if you back up your work with a value guarantee like we advocate, then that's the antithesis of gouging. Mm-hmm. Because in theory, the customer could get either all their money back or a portion of their money back, depending on how you structure it. But, mm-hmm. you know, the value guarantee to me is the ultimate in ethics in terms yeah. of being a professional.
0: Absolutely. And it's, I think it's, I think having a guarantee of some kind, whether it's a money back guarantee or satisfaction guarantee, you know, I'll keep working until you're happy with the outcome. Then I think that answers a question that comes up when, when people accept or when you talk about a fixed price with a client uh, or prospect, most of them love it. Uh, Occasionally I'll get someone who's like concerned that I'm going to cut corners because you know it's you know it's only x amount of dollars are you just going to kind of race through this and do a low quality job and right. that and then having a satisfaction guarantee you can say uh, and usually what i'll do is a bug free guarantee so i'll so, you know with software i'll say look after delivery if any bugs crop up i'll fix them for free for the life of the software so hmm. what that does is it puts an incentive on me to make the software amazing and easy to debug easy to troubleshoot so it keeps it it puts the it puts it's different financial incentives but it puts financial incentives on both parties myself and the uh, client to do the best possible job as fast as possible
1: it really does i mean there's there's a great book on this by a guy named christopher hart called extraordinary guarantees and he's a harvard professor and he studies guarantees in in service businesses and really documents how, you know, not only are they a great thing for the customer, they can command a higher price because a service that's guaranteed is is worth more than a service that's not, obviously. And mm-hmm. and let's face it, services are a higher risk purchase for the customer. Like you said, if your lamp blows up, you take it back and get a new one. Mm-hmm. But how do I know if my vet screwed up my dog? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so, the, so by um, uh, reducing the risk with the guarantee, uh, he's documented all all the things that that does inside of a firm to, to keep you on your toes. It, and I think also it makes for better customer selection. You're more likely to be a bit picky because if you have any qualms about somebody who might, you know, un, unjustifiably pull the trigger on that guarantee, you might not take them on in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it's just a, a win-win situation all the way around to use the guarantee. Yeah. Is that the book that the ex, there's an exterminator example? yes, but Barry's bugs killer or something in Florida. (laughs) This guy's got this outrageous guarantee for like hotels and restaurants. You know, he's an exterminator and I I don't remember all the particulars, but it's like if any of your guests see a rodent or an insect, you know, during their stay at dinner in their room or something, not only will I pay for their stay, I'll pay for an alternative stay at a similar resort somewhere else. And I'll, I'll, um, I'll also pay for your exter- uh, your new exterminator for one year. <laughs> I mean, it's an, I, and this guy charges like five times what other what other exterminators charge in the area. I mean, my veterinarian Jonathan's got a guarantee. Now, it's not that he's going to keep my dog alive, mm. but it's it's that I'm going to be happy interacting with his office. And what he's really saying to me is, look, if there's a problem, I want to incent you. To come to us and talk to us and give us a second chance to to win your business, mm-hmm. and he's not the cheapest vet in town, but he's fantastic. And I think it it makes everybody aware that you know what our money's where our mouth is. We can't just say how great we are; we have to prove it every day. We have to walk the talk, and that's mm-hmm. what the psychology of that guarantee does. Mm-hmm.
0: Absolutely, that freaks people out a lot of times. Software developers, especially when they've had uh, bad client experiences but i I think that if you start small and do something like a you know like a bug fix guarantee, maybe you put a limited time on it like you know a few months. Sure. It will differentiate you from your competitors because your competitors also don't want to give a guarantee. So <laughs> it, it does allow you to justify a higher fee for sure. and And I think the my favorite part of it you mentioned, which is that it forces you to have the right kind of conversation at the beginning because you want to instead of talking about scope so much which is what we all love to do as software developers uh, we we like to start solving the problem while we before we even made the sale it forces you to to go beyond that and find out how you're going to satisfy this customer if you're giving them a satisfaction guarantee you know you want to find out exactly what is going to make them happy and it, it changes the tone and the it just changes the kind of conversation that you have and allows you to perhaps come up with a creative way to satisfy them without going through the first approach that you
1: might have kind of cobbled together in your mind while you were talking to them. Right. No, that's a great point. It does force you to have better communication up front, spend more time in diagnosis which I don't think we professionals are very good at, we Mm -hmm. tend to jump right into the prescription. (laughs) And prescription without diagnosis is malpractice, at least Mm -hmm. in medicine. Um, What I find really interesting, because I've been teaching ethics now for 15 plus years to CPAs and other professionals, so I take this very seriously, which is why I always have a chapter in my book about the ethics of of value pricing and price discrimination. Uh, But I, I tend not to make the argument that hourly billing is unethical because I found that standing in front of audiences and telling them they're unethical is not very persuasive. But if, if you back me into a corner, I could very easily make the argument that hourly billing is what's unethical and I can do it by just citing the golden rule, right? Do on to others. Would you want a universal system of hourly billing for everything that you buy? So you get on a plane, you're charged four bucks a minute retroactively, right? Um, I mean, think about it. It would be ludicrous. We, we consumers want a price up front. We want to know what, what it's going to cost so we can compare it to the perceived value. And that's how we buy everything else in our lives. Mm-hmm. And, and why do we think professional services of any kind are, are, are any different? They're not. Yep. They're subject to those same laws. I mean, even my earthquake insurance company, I'm in Northern California, they don't know when the next quake is going to strike, and they don't know how big it's going to be, what their losses are going to be, but they still give me a fixed price because I wouldn't know if I could afford it if they didn't. Right. If they tried to do some type of time and material cost plus after the quake <laughs> and retroactively bill me, that's, I mean, just, it's ludicrous. So I think it violates the golden rule it violates the whole, you know, would you want this to be universal? Mm -hmm. And therefore you could make a very strong argument, I think, that that it's unethical. However, I, I, I like to make a different argument that hourly billing specifically is unprofessional because I think the definition of a professional is someone who takes responsibility for creating an outcome not delivering a series of tasks. Mm -hmm. And the problem with hourly billing is it atomizes everything into a six-minute or or one-hour task. Well, if I want a bunch of tasks done, I can hire a day laborer, but I hire a professional to transform me from where I am to where I want to be. And I want him or her focused on that outcome, the totality of that outcome, not the individual tasks that go into it.
0: Yeah. That's the mind shift right there, which is, is switching mentally as you're, you know, thinking about talking to prospects and making sales, switching mentally from the concept of selling your hands to selling your head. So it's not, software developers are very used to selling their hands and essentially taking orders from the client. Here's what I want you to do. Build this feature, build this feature, build this feature, build this feature. And it's, pretty rare in my experience for them to say, okay, I, you know, I've got all that information. Now let's step back for a second. What are these features? What are they meant to do for you? I know you don't just want them for fun. What are you, what goal are you trying to achieve? Are you trying to create a startup that's going to go public? Are you trying to patch up a legacy system for your bank? Like what's the goal here? And try and get them to, to drill into the why they would even consider hiring someone like you instead of, uh, just finding out what they want done, and then telling you how
1: they want you want to do how they want you to do it. Right, and and I, is it because we don't like to challenge the client? I, I think sometimes we we feel like we're supplicants to them and not equals. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, so yeah, yeah. We just become order takers rather than cha- you know we're supposed to challenge them. We're professionals. We're the one with the judgment. If if they're starting to go down the wrong track, it, it's kind of our ethical responsibility. To say, no, I think this would be better. Here's a better alternative to, to your dilemma. Mm-hmm. But we tend not to do that. Mm. There's
0: something you mentioned uh, a little while back about pricing the customer and, and essentially someone raising their hand and asking you, well, it seems unethical to charge customer A or client A X and client B Y for the exact same work. And in when I get that from, I don't know about other professions, but certainly software development. There's no such thing as the same work. Thank you. <laughs> That's my first retort to that. Okay. <laughs> all right. I didn't know if it was just software, but there's there's no such thing.
1: No, not at all. Clients are different. They they require different amounts of hand holding and coaching and, and just structure. Um, it, it, it's crazy. I th- I you know, it's like eyeglass prescriptions. Everybody's unique. However, you know, when you start looking at price discrimination, and that was a term coined by an economist back in the 20s, a guy named Arthur Cecil Pigou, who said price discrimination is like playing with fire. Businesses have to be very careful with it because there are these perceptions of fairness. Uh, I'll give you and you've read some of these, I'm sure, Amazon. Remember when Amazon got caught charging uh, different prices for different zip codes? Uh, for DVDs, I think it was. Mm. So if you lived in Hollywood or you know 90210 or whatever, you paid a higher price than if you lived in some other area. Um, and, and that got a lot of blowback. Coca-Cola came out with vending machines that actually had thermometers in them, in digital price. And for their outside vending machines, like NASCAR races and amusement parks, things like that, when it got hotter out, the price went up. <laughs> now, people were outraged at this. Just absolutely. Uh, the press went nuts. People went nuts. There was tons of blowback. Mm. Um, but you know, without price discrimination, without being able to charge different customers, different prices for, for basically the same thing, we wouldn't have senior discounts. We wouldn't have coupons. We wouldn't have children's prices. We, uh, poor countries wouldn't be able to afford drugs. You know, because uh, countries with higher incomes are charged higher prices for drugs, it's just a fact of life, mm-hmm. and and that's how you get countries uh, you know that are poor. That's how you get great drugs into those those countries. So price discrimination's actually got these incredible welfare benefits that economists have documented. But because it seems so counterintuitive, and so the perception of unfairness is so big with it, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a big hurdle. But I tell people, like you said, there, there's no two customers that are alike. Also, if you offer options, that justifies charging different people different prices because some people take the green card and others take the platinum card. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's there's ways around it. But I but I think businesses, uh, professionals specifically, are going to have to get comfortable realizing that you know what hourly billing leads to different prices for you know different customers. So value pricing will too. Mm. Yeah,
0: when you mentioned the Coke machine, it, it made me think of Uber's surge pricing, and yes. they've, I, in my opinion, they've done a really good job of justifying that by saying, "Look, if we don't do that, you're not going to get a ride. Like, there's not going to be a ride available. So
1: you can either pay more or walk, right, or so- or have the have a fair price, but but walk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, yeah, it, it, if it's the other thing that I challenge people on. If it's immoral for businesses to charge high prices, is it thereby immoral for customers to pay low prices? <laughs> and I'll, I'll just give you an example. I walked into, this is back way before eBay or Amazon, um, in the early 90s, I walked into a used bookstore in San Diego, and I saw a book by Stanley Marcus, who's one of my heroes, and it was a first edition, and it was signed by him. Now, it was used, but when and, and I'm looking at this book, it's in, it's in good condition, and I said, I'll easily pay $200 for this book. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking to myself, when I opened it up and saw the little pencil price that the owner had put in it, it was $10. Mm. Now, did I walk up to that owner and say, you know what? I was willing to pay you 200 bucks for this, and you're only going to charge me 10 So I'll tell you what, I'll split the difference with you. No, I didn't do that. <laughs> I walked out of that store $190 richer. Right. Does that make me unethical? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I it's funny I you say so. that.
0: I don't think so, <laughs> but I've, I, and I know other people who have uh, done the option you considered. So uh-huh. I think, th- I think there is a line to be drawn. So for example, uh, my coincidentally enough, my stepfather is a used book dealer mm. and he, it is not uncommon for him to be in that situation where he's buying books from a non expert. You know, somebody's parent passes away. They were Brown professor, we live near Brown University, and they have a treasure trove of books. And the the son of the the person who owned the collection, it just wants them out of there, right? And <clears throat> on a number of occasions, my stepfather would go in there and be like, "Hey, I'll give you a thousand bucks for the whole the whole lot. I'm not even going to go through them, uh, but then he'll go through and find just a gem like uh, sure. like you said, signed first edition of Profiles and Courage." jet uh, by JFK or, or sometimes he'll find a a hardcover book with the pages cut out and jewelry inside of it mm. that mm. nobody even knew about. And he does go back and say, look, I can't, I can't take this, the jewelry, obviously he's going to give back. But, but even when he finds a, um, when he finds a gem he goes back and he gives them what he believes is a fair price for it and of course they're overjoyed that because he didn't have to do that but it's so the thing there is i think the difference is you've got the sort of expert and the novice
1: and yes i, I think that plays into it which i i, I do too mm-hmm. and and i think that's why the guarantee is so important and and also reputation you know and 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 having that i mean i think you're did you say your stepdad yeah uh, uh, does that, um, because he's concerned about his long-term reputation. Sure. It's not just about the math of the moment. It's about the value of that relationship over a lifetime. And, and I think that's another problem with the hourly billing is it only focuses on the math of the moment and doesn't look at the lifetime value of the relationship. That's a great point. So <clears throat>
0: one thing I like to, I don't know if, I don't know if I've heard you talk about this, so let's bring it up. The the thing that I like to tell people when they hit me with the gouging thing is I say, well, it cuts both ways. You know, I can't... The world doesn't owe me, you know, $150 an hour to engage in my favorite activities. Yeah. So if if I'm going to do some kind of a software solution or uh, an intranet or a marketing website for Papageno's and it's going to, you know, it's going to take me six months and I'm going to charge them 150 bucks an hour. And it works out to a hundred thousand dollars or whatever that is. And then later a mom and pop pizza place comes to me and wants, you know, air quotes the same thing. And I say, yeah, okay, well, it's going to be a hundred thousand dollars. You can't, you can't do that. You can't just say that, Oh, my prices are high and therefore everybody has to pay them. You, you talk to the client you say, look, what are you trying, what's the desired outcome here? What are you trying to get? What's the, what would a home run look like? How are we going to measure our progress toward achieving that goal while we're doing the work, make sure we're on the right path. And if they say, you know, if if it ends up that the value to them is actually not that big, you can't expect them to, you know, you, I mean, you can turn around and give them a quote for a crazy amount of money, a very high amount of money, but they're just going to say no. Right. So you, it, it's, it's so hard for me to even get back to the place where I see, uh, where I, I get the knee jerk gouging reaction. <laughs> it's
1: like, right, right. I, that it's it, hard it to like, explain it. It is, because you're, you're right. You're, you're adept now at riding the backwards bicycle, and you can't go back to a, <laughs> to a normal one. <laughs> exactly. Um, but let, let me give you an example from like accounting or law, just a real simple one that everybody can relate to, just like yours. Somebody comes in with a complex tax problem. Something like that, and you have to do the research, and you maybe you write a legal mem- uh, memo or opinion brief, whatever. And now you've got that. So, say you spend uh, you know some amount of hours, hundred hours on that researching it and doing all this stuff. Charge the first client whatever it is, ten grand. But then a second client comes along. It's got the exact same question, and with hourly billing, if it only takes you a half hour to go in and revise that memo and change some names, that's all you can charge. Mm-hmm. So think about that for a minute. The first, per, the first customer is actually subsidizing the second customer, irrespective of either of those customers' sense of value. Mm-hmm. It, just, it just makes no sense. It would be like if Microsoft or a pharmaceutical company charged the first guy to buy Windows <laughs> all the R&D costs, and then the second guy paid just the marginal cost of the box and the, the CD, uh, that's a funny example
0: because the, the legal example, because there you are, you've got, you're, you're charging two different clients, different amount of money for the exact same or outcome, the exact same answer. It's different. You're, so it, perhaps that's where the, the disconnect is happening because people who feel that this, you know, developers in my case, who feel that this is unethical are focused way too much on the work instead of focusing on the outcome that they're delivering. So, yeah. so in the case where the two clients had the same legal question and one of them had to be researched and the other one didn't because now they had the information, they're like, well, I didn't have to do any work. It was easy. So I just charged them for an hour. It's like, but that's not the thing you should be pricing. Your activities behind the scenes, it probably wasn't fair to the first one. Right. So that, it, That's exactly right. And This happens all the time in software because someone will build a library or a pattern uh, a style guide or some sort of uh, open source framework and then they've got it. And so they're like, all right, I, I, you know, maybe I built it for a client and then I abstracted out the code that I thought would be reusable. And now a new client com- comes along and sure enough, I can use my library. But then all of a sudden they're like, well, wait a second. <laughs> I put 400 hours into that library and now I'm going to be able to deliver this guy's website in 20 minutes. So how, and that's the question the question I get is how should I charge them for that, the library? And I'm like, and they, they can't figure out how to do it because they are planning to charge by the hour, but they're trying to, okay, how much of the 400 hours is fair to charge to the new guy? Even though I didn't redo the work, right? You know, it's kind of, yeah, it's, it's hilarious.
1: It, it is because then, then you find people padding their timesheet for that second guy because they didn't spend anywhere near the amount of time on the as on the first guy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's unethical to be – I mean a lawyer can get thrown in jail for that, mm. for padding timesheets, which is ludicrous <laughs> because the price should be agreed up front between the customer. And like you said, it should be based on the outcome. The other thing, Jonathan, I know you've talked about this in prior podcasts, is the risk. To the mm. firm of this customer, if you're doing Tiger Woods uh, divorce or, or program, uh, you've got a much higher risk than ma and pa kettles mm-hmm. and risk can't be priced by the hour. There's no actuarial model for pricing risk by the hour. Right. So if that second customer is is riskier to your firm, then they deserve to be charged a higher price. Yeah, Absolutely. The, you know, the other thing, though, when you talk about all of these things, you, d- you do have to think about fairness. And I'll just give you an example. I mean, y- you've seen gas stations that, you know, might post a price and uh, a cash price just because they want their sign to be the lowest possible price, right, as you're mm-hmm. driving by. And then you get in there and you find out, oh, it's 10 cent premium if you use a credit card. <laughs> well, we hate that. We hate to pay premiums. We hate to pay, you know, surcharges, things like that. We just... There's just something about human psychology that we don't like. Uh, So they're much better off showing the higher price and saying, if you pay cash, you'll get a 10 cent discount. Even though the dollar amount is exactly the same, we'll perceive that as more fair. Much like if Coke would have came out and said, when it gets colder, the price will drop. (laughs) If they would have said that, nobody would have peeped but they didn't. Yeah. And and so you do have to take that fairness into account, but if you're offering three options like you always talk about on the show, mm-hmm. then I think you're going to get over that issue right away just by offering options because if if they if they think the top option is quote-unquote gouging or just unfair or too high, they can always pick the lowest priced option
0: or go with a competitor. I mean, the reason the reason I put options in is so they don't have to so that they have prices to compare Fair. to Without going to a competitor,
1: absolutely. Yep, that's one of its great advantages. It puts your prices in context, and you're actually comparing you against you.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: I mean, to get back to the gouging,
0: just the word gouging, it's it's a it's a specific legal term, at least in the U.S. That part of the definition is that you don't have another option. It's like a, a short. It's like having a short-term monopoly due to a natural disaster or some uh, some short time windows of of urgent need, and that's that's it would be impossible for that to be the case with pretty much any. I've
1: never seen a scenario like that happen in my world. You know, no, like, it's it, it. You do see it like after natural disasters, you'll hear about you know tripling the price of hotel rooms or whatever. Hmm. I, I think you can make an ethical case for that because what it does is it it it, it makes sure that there's a supply there. It's like it's like Uber surge pricing, right? Sure, we'll sell you this uh, generator that you need at, at the normal price. But the problem is we don't have any. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the higher prices that get the truck drivers sitting in Ohio on the couch watching football to get in their truck and, and drive more supplies down to Florida where they're needed. Exactly. The high prices send that signal. The, the other thing that's really interesting about the word gouging, I think it, you're, you're right, it is a legal term, is this idea of a fair price or a just price. I mean, this is something theologians have been debating forever and philosophers. But what's the opposite of fair? And when I ask that question, people usually say unfair. It's like, no, the opposite of fair is foul. Hmm. And if we have to look to baseball, you know, foul ball. But nobody runs around and says, oh, that's a foul price. <laughs> 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 I have,
0: I'm trying not to go down a, a sort of tangential rabbit hole that we touched on. Maybe we could, maybe we could do it on another episode. Sure. Fair enough. Yeah. So
1: <laughs> where
0: can people find out more about uh, you and Ver- Verisage?
1: Verisage at verisage.com, which is the think tank with uh, all of our resources up there, helping firms move away from the billable hour and get rid of timesheets, by the way, because I think that's the other cancer. Uh, and also they can find my radio show at the soul dot we have an archive page up there. We've done 140 some odd episodes and they're all up there and you can listen to them. And we've taken on this issue. We've taken on the ethics of, of value pricing. And and uh, I think part of it, too, Jonathan, is self-esteem. You know, if we don't think we're worth it, how will, will our customers ever believe we're worth it? And and I think some of this argument of, of gouging and this is unfair, it, it's really when you peel back the onion, it's a self-esteem issue. They just don't think they're worth it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yes.
0: Great. Definitely te- check out the soul of enterprise. It's a great show. It's one of my favorites and you guys cover a lot more stuff than just value pricing. It's all, it's more, uh, knowledge economy.
1: Uh, I, I think I had an AI episode recently and <laughs> yeah, we talked to a lot of economists and knowledge economy and, and all that type of stuff. And then on, we, every last Friday we do a free writer Friday where we just kind of go through stories that Ed and I think are really interesting and bounce off each other. So it's a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, really a great show. Ed's awesome too. Thank you. All right, Ron. Well, thanks very much. We'll see you
1: next time. All right. Thanks, Jonathan.
0: The next time someone asks you for your hourly rate, you should say, I don't have one. To learn what to say next, visit valuepricingbootcamp.com to sign up for my free email course. That website again is valuepricingbootcamp.com.